Hello and welcome to the Michael Mama Show. I'm your host, Michael Mamas, and we're coming to you uh, from uh, Mount Soma, home of the Sri Sameshwara Temple in the mountains of Western North Carolina. Uh, today's episode is entitled uh, Wisdom's Paradox, kind of a catchy title. But uh, before we get started, I thought we would uh, just bring up a few little um, announcements or points or whatever. Uh, Adrian, you wanted to start, I think. Yes, absolutely. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so first of all, I wanted to let everybody know that you can get all things Michael Mamas. Adrian, Adrian, talk a little slowly because the, the audio, your audio is not that great. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, you can get all things Michael Mamas at michaelmamas.net or michaelmamas.com. Um, we have archived audios for all the podcasts that are available. When you go to the podcast area on michaelmamas.com, there's a, there'll be a link there. Um, there's well, a list yeah, of, at michaelmamas.com. You see the, all, the list of the past, I think something like 50 some podcasts. Yes. You scroll through them, read the titles. And if you click on it and then over on the right, there's a little place you can click. that just says a little something about, you know, what that particular podcast is about. Uh, and then at michaelmamas.net. Yeah, Adrian, uh, at michaelmamas.net, uh, we actually have all the different, uh, blogs uh, archived and you can type in a subject almost any word you know that we've covered and then the blogs that apply to that will come up yeah it's a great resource so much information there yeah adrian i think you were saying that you really like the archives you go through them i do i sit down and i just you know pick one and and get a whole um little mini lecture that you've blogged about it i find it uh I don't know. It just keep, keeps my brain going and keeps me on this kind of information, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah. I really love it. Great resource. Good. Um, yeah. So also, if you go to um, the michaelmamas.net, there'll be three parallel lines there on the right. And if you click that, you can um, ask questions and get notifications for the blogs. Yeah, so I'm they'll repeat. just come I'm to re- you. I'm going to repeat because your audio is not that good, at least not, not the way I'm getting it. So, so, yeah, at the top of michaelmamas.net, there's a bar. I think it's blue, as I recall. And over on the right, there are three parallel horizontal lines. And if you click on those, you can ask any question or make a comment on a blog or just any question or comment that you have would be welcome. Uh, and there's also a place when you click there, you go to a page that you can ask a question or comment. And also there's a place there where you can uh, sign up so that you get notifications when we uh, post a new blog or um, uh, like that. Yeah. yeah. What else, Adrian? What are we going to talk about? Meditating. So if you go to YouTube, mm-hmm. you can click on uh, your the the top post will be your YouTube channel, and the first two posts in there, I believe, are how to meditate. They're really great videos. Oh yeah, yeah, and you know there are all kinds of meditations out there. And uh, some of them are more about controlling the mind, focusing the mind, training the mind. Uh, this particular meditation, it's an ancient meditation uh, uh, right out of the Himalayas, you know. And uh, what it does is it allows the physiology and the mind, the awareness to just rest. 
because when it rests, it just rests into its own true nature, the normal functioning of the, of the physiology, you know. So in a sense, you could look at it like the whole path of human evolution, or at least uh, the path to enlightenment, uh, is about normalization. The, the physiology is designed to function a certain way, and if it gets too exhausted, too tired, too stressed, what have you, uh, any kind of uh, distortions or anything that are there in the functioning of the brain, you know, like that, and the whole awareness. Uh, it's all just a matter of allowing the physiology to, to rest so that that gets released naturally, you know. And that's what the meditation is. Yeah. Um, also, for people who want to come visit Mount Soma, um, you can contact Marsha at MountSoma.org, and that's Marsha with a C, M-A-R-C-I-A, um, to either, you know, get more information or make connection before you go out there for a visit. So, you know, you know what? Say that again. The, which part? The part about Marsha.org? The Marsha at MountSoma.org? Yeah, that, that's good. Coming yeah. out to see Mount Soma? Yeah, that's right. If you, if they want to come and visit Mount Soma or anything like that, they can always write Marsha. Marsha with a C. M-E-R-C-I-A at Mount Soma.org. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And that's about it for me. Yeah, okay. Oh, and then also there's this thing, uh, Adrian, you and I were just talking about. I thought I'd like to bring that up. And this is just a question. If anybody has the answer to this question and can explain it to me, I'd love to hear from you. But uh, I remember, and Adrian, you were saying when we talked about it, you were saying you remember this too, that um, before the whole virus thing came up and everything, I, th- I think it was a medical association. It might have even been the AMA. I don't know. But they put out this um, information that said, you know, why do you think people catch colds in the winter? And they said, usually people think they catch colds in the winter time. Because they go outside and it's cold out, they get a chill, and that causes them to catch a cold. Right. But they were saying that's not it. That's not the reason people um, catch colds in the winter. They said the reason people catch colds in the winter is because they remain cloistered. They go in their homes and they don't go out, and so they're breathing the same air over and over again. And so if there's a virus there, it takes over. And my question, I mean, that just seems like a – kind of a contradiction to the whole lockdown thing. Um, and I, I can come up with, I don't know. I mean, it's a different kind of virus or I don't know what, but anyway, to me, it just feels a little, a little strange. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So again, if somebody has yeah. an answer to that and can help me with it, I'd love to hear from you, you know? Yeah. All right. Is there anything else, uh, Adrian or Scotty that we want to talk about before we uh, move on with today's topic? Um, oh, the only other thing that we were thinking about was um, uh, going to the, the for the uh, Shrisa Masfara donation page. Um, that's also at michaelmamas.com. If you wanted to donate to Mount Soma, oh, that's right. um, there's a place to donate at michaelmamas.com as well. That's probably the best way to do it. If you go to michaelmamas.com, scroll down to the bottom. There are a whole, there's a in very fine print. You know, there's a list of different things you can do. And one of them is how to donate. You click there and it takes you right to the page where you can donate with credit card or whatever to uh, uh, the Sri Sameshwara Temple. And we would really appreciate your support. Okay. Yeah. 
All right, good. Yeah, good, Adrian. Thank you for that. Um, so wisdom's paradox, you know. I remember uh, I was a kid then, and I remember thinking to myself that, um, and don't worry, this all comes out in a wash. It might, it might sound challenging at first. It's not. But I just remember thinking to myself uh, that I just needed a better reason to be Christian than just because I happened to be born in the United States into a Christian family, you know. Uh, and I went through a lot of thought about that. Concurrently with that, as a lot of people are when they're young, I was kind of a pensive kid, you know. I sort of wondered what life is all about. I remember even in elementary school, discovering Thoreau and I thought, you know, Thoreau was cool. And then I remember discovering Emerson in the sixth grade. And then when I realized that they knew each other, I thought that was so incredible, you know? Uh, and I just wondered, you know, what's life about? And then I got into the philosophers, I think in junior high school, you know, uh, how do I know this is my hand in front of my face? You know, uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I exist. And, you know, I remember challenging that with, I think, therefore I think I exist, you know. Oh, and then I remember I came up with the idea, I think, therefore consciousness is. Because um, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I remember um, the I, the individuality, that could all be part of the illusion, you know, uh, the Maya. But uh, the consciousness is irrefutable. It may be completely um, uh, deceived, kind of like in the movie The Matrix, you know, but uh, nevertheless, the consciousness is irrefutable. Uh, so I thought, I think, therefore, consciousness is. That actually turned out to be pretty good as I got older. Uh, and then I re remember, you know, people like Swami Muktananda and that, saying that in all the ancient seers, all the ancient rishis, you know, there's all the fundamental basis, the underlying basis of con of existence is consciousness. And then the modern physicists, I talked about that, not all of them, but a lot of the modern physicists said the more they study the one thing that's the source of everything, the unified field, the more re they realize it's consciousness. Um, so, you know, the, all that kind of thinking and, and reflectiveness and then the, Sooner or later, I ended up at the age 21 uh, at the feet of, you know, my, my teacher. And uh, from there, I was off and running, you know. But it's an interesting thing. There was a guy, oh, gee, I think I actually wrote his name down. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. It doesn't really matter. But um, at any rate, he was talking, you know, it's around Christmas time. And so there was an, another thing I heard uh, that uh, oh, this all gets very interesting. God sent this, his Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, then I, I've seen, you know, some of these guys come on Sunday morning TV or whatever, and they're like, um, uh, God is the only answer to the world. Such a mess. The only answer is God. And uh, um, both of those things 
depending on uh, what you mean by them. You know, we can pick things up on so many different levels. In my podcasts and blogs, I've talked about, you know, the transgradient nature of existence, the reality continuum. Uh, so, you know, what is love on a physical level? What is love on a psychological level? What is love on a deeper transcendental level? You know, so there's a continuum, a gradient. And uh, uh, like that, these ideas of um, God sending the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, you know, uh, that means different things on different levels. But I think the deeper we go in our understanding of life and existence, you know, the better. And that includes our understanding of um, religion, Christianity, what it means that God's the only way. But anyway, there was this guy, I can't remember his name now, but um, he was talking about, and this was good, I thought, but he was talking, (laughs) it's actually interesting. He was talking about uh, relativity and how different people, basically, we people get caught up in a particular narrative. There's kind of a uh, way of framing their notion of life. Uh, and in, in a sense, at least on some level, uh, you could say every religion has a corresponding narrative, a narrative that goes along with it. Uh, and then I remember, you know, you'll see people uh, walking and they have a cross. And uh, even that, you know, can have different meanings on different levels. But I believe that everybody, uh, to some degree, can sense, you know, that inner divinity, that one thing that's the source of everything. And uh, I think for many people, for Christians, many Christians, the cross is kind of a reminder that, you know, to themselves and to anybody they meet, hey, you know, I know that there's something deep inside, something deep inside of me and deep inside of all of us beyond, you know, I would say relativity that um, uh, is divine, you know? And so that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And it's, it's always amazed me how, you know, because if you think about it, prior to modern physics and all that stuff, I mean, that really logically didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, on a purely superficial level of life without that inner sense of that divinity within and that divinity that underlies, uh, on a completely rational level, uh, prior to understanding that there's such a thing as a unified field, quantum mechanics, all that stuff, uh, there was no reason to believe that. I'm me, you're you, we're separate, that's it. And this whole idea of uh, right and wrong, I mean, it's just arbitrary is the, is the way it would be looked at. You know, the, the nihilists, you know, they just they don't believe in anything, you know. And then um, different belief systems, different narratives come along, different um, ways of thinking come along. Uh, 
a lot of them are just indoctrinations into political viewpoints. Um, you know, some people believe in capitalism, other people believe in communism, Marxism, uh, all these different forms of government and uh, beliefs. Uh, but just where do those come from? A lot of them are completely, you know, superficial constructs. Oh, wouldn't it be great if, you know, uh, let's create a world and let's hear the rules. Uh, and so that's why I really think that idea, like in the Constitution, as an example, of the idea that they're inalienable rights is, a, is a, to me, that's a beautiful concept, you know, because it speaks to nature. It speaks to the idea that there's this underlying basis, you know, uh, this one thing that is the source of everything. And as we um, tap into that, we tap into our own true nature. And it is inherent in our nature. It's inherent in our nature, for example, of what it means to be human, that there are certain... um, inalienable rights. They're inherent to our nature. You can't take it away from us because it's our nature. It is nature. So you see, there's something beyond the arbitrariness of belief systems or philosophies. And uh, uh, that's really the foundation. That's the foundation, I think, of all religions. But what happens, here's an interesting thing. It's kind of the way the human mind functions. We create mental constructs. We create narratives. We create uh, a concept even around the notion of God and what God is and what the word of God is. And uh, then we start to um, sort of lose ourselves to the narrative. Now, even that, it's, see, it's all paradoxical, isn't it? Because on the one hand, these narratives help point us in a direction. They help, you know, putting it, how would we say it, keep us on the straight and narrow? I don't know. They, they, are they like guidelines or signposts to uh, uh, help us grow as human beings and live a, a, a healthy life? At the, at the same time, uh, if the, if the narratives become too rigidly adhered to, or maybe that's not too white knuckled onto, too narrowly uh, viewed, probably the best way to say it, uh, then they actually become indoctrinations or even fanaticisms. And I think really what, where we're at in the world today, not just with respect to Christianity, but all the different religions, uh, uh, even, you know, young kids that come to the temple that are Hindu, you know, uh, it kind of doesn't make sense to them, you know. Uh, I, I've had them say that, you know. Uh, their parents are into it, but, you know, they're, I don't know if I believe this stuff or not, you know. And I think that's because the, the way they were introduced to it, the way they've been exposed to it, it's just, it's a narrative. And it doesn't make any sense. So what the point being there, when the surface loses its connection to the depth, uh, um then it's just a rationale. It's, it's just a uh, belief system. And what really gives those narratives meaning and gives us deeper insight into their nature is 
finding it within the depth of our own soul. And so, you know, back to the question then. When I was a little kid, I needed a better reason than the fact that I was born in an American and Christian family to devote my life to Christianity. Uh, but then I started to learn um, uh, about cultural integrity, for example. Uh, a culture, when it's healthy, when it's healthy, cultures the awareness of the individuals. It facilitates their growth as human beings and their development as human beings. Provided that culture and the norms and the values of that culture are healthy. In other words, what does that mean? That the the uh, value systems of the culture are integrated with the depth, with nature, our own true nature. And there are different um, uh, cultural structures all over the world uh, that, when healthy, can do that. In fact, there is no one culture that can do that. Why? Because different parts of the world have different laws of nature. The laws of nature are different on a mountaintop than they are in the desert. If you live, you know, uh, on the ocean, you're going to have a different uh, 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 nature to the whole life than you would if you were, you know, no bodies of water anywhere near, you know. And each of those things create an entire culture, an entire civilization that is in harmony with the laws of nature of that place. And because you're born in that place, because you're born in that area, then those cultures will help culture your own evolution, your own growth, you see? So it all, it all came around in an interesting way. But now I say that, and at the same time, um, you know, we build a, a Shiva temple, the Sri Sameshwara temple. I'm completely into Vedic knowledge. And so doesn't that mean, I mean, if I was Christian, would I be doing that? Well, here's the thing. Uh, the ancient seers, the ancient rishis, they're called, uh, they were very wise and they had deep knowledge and they, uh, through what's called Vedic cognitions, which is a whole other thing I could talk about, and I will sometime, but through the Vedic cognitions, they uh, provided insights into the nature and structure of life and existence. And they're very profound teachings. Uh, uh, and it's then through their teaching, through that Vedic tradition, what a lot of people would say is Hinduism, but really, and that's fine, but but really Vedic cognitions are something that's, it's like physics. I mean, physics isn't Christian. Physics isn't Hindu. Physics is physics, and it underlies all the different religions, all the different facets of life. And like that, these Vedic, this Vedic, this deep Vedic knowledge, we're talking about the nature of life, the nature of nature. And uh, I don't see that anywhere else uh, to the degree of rigor and clarity and insight that I, I, I see uh, uh, within that Vedic tradition. And so the Sri Sameshwara temple that we have here, it's a, it's a Vedic temple, you know. Uh, so 
I don't disagree. I mean, yeah, Jesus is the only way. That's for sure. But what does that mean? It means there's only one unified field. And Jesus was an embodiment. He knew he was one with that. And he spoke from that place. You see? And so, yeah, that's the only way. Uh, And we could say that the Christ, I mean, if Jesus, what do we mean by Jesus? Is that a chunk of flesh, a being? Or is that the Christ, the Christ spirit that lived within him that he knew he was? And so in that sense, the Christ is a value that underlies and dwells within every religion. We can use a different word. And there are good reasons why we would use a different word. But uh, some would say it's Krishna, some would say it's Shiva, some would Muhammad, you know. uh, But what's important, you see, is the understanding, the understanding of the nature and structure of existence. Because if we get too narrow with with, uh, our identity, with the narrative, it loses its meaning. That's why I like to say when the master speaks, it immediately ceases to be what the master said and becomes what the listener heard. Because reality has different levels, transgradient, and also then the level of a person's knowledge and understanding uh, uh, is transgradient. Depends on the nature of what? The nature of the person's physiology, the nature of the person's awareness, the nature of the person's identity with a a narrative, a white-knuckling onto a limited perspective, for example. And all too often in the world today, what we think of as uh, education is really indoctrination. You know, if we get really, 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 really indoctrinated into a narrative, then um, we consider ourselves well-educated. And when the master speaks, this is an interesting thing. He uses words. He builds a narrative. A narrative is built out of the words. It's a conceptual construct. And uh, so if we hang on to the conceptual construct, then we lose the, the underlying basis, the underlying meaning, which isn't thingness. It's beyond thingness. It's beyond relativity. Uh, truth is not a concretion. Truth is an abstraction. Consciousness isn't a thing you can grab onto. It's like the blank television screen. You can project anything on the blank television screen. It's not a thing. It's a vessel that holds all things. But in and of itself, it lies beyond thingness, beyond you know relativity. And so even in, in that, if we try to take on a notion of uh, uh, oneness, of consciousness, and then we view it from this mode of function of human awareness, which is caught up in narrative and concepts in that regard, what we end up with is we, we sort of take it and turn it on its head. Here we have, you know, at the very basis of life, purisness, pure consciousness, and then relativity sprouts out like the branches of a tree. But when we conceptualize that, we kind of turn it over on its ear. So we don't just have good and then certain levels of understanding of good. Now we take it and turn it into a uh, uh, relativistic thing. This is relative to that. So it's no longer um, 
divinity and lack of understanding of divinity. It's divinity and evil, God and evil, you know, the devil. And so those become uh, intellectual constructs. See, there is such a thing as absolute divinity. That's field purism, pure consciousness. But there is no such thing as a, a field of pure evil. It's just divinity with a lack of awareness of its own true nature. It gets confused. It gets so lost to a narrative. Uh, and that's what it can mean to, you know, they, sometimes they say somebody has lost their soul. Well, that's what it means to lose your soul. But even, even that, you see, it's nobody totally loses their soul because it's the soul is what keeps them alive. That that source of life is the transcendent itself. But there are degrees of where we lose our connection with our own true nature. And that's a physiological thing. It's not uh, something we can decide, oh, okay, well, great. Now I get it. And so now I'm completely devoted to God and everything is good. And, you know, I've been, you know, awakened. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Uh, it's a physiological state that we live spontaneously. It's not an attitude or a philosophy or a belief system that we take on, you know. Uh, so that's, that is the paradox of wisdom, isn't it? I mean, what does it really mean to be wise? To communicate, even the wise, they use words. We talk, Jesus gave lectures, Krishna, Vashishta, you know, all these great discourses. But they really live in a place that is beyond words, is beyond relativity. That's home for them, you know? And so it's, see, it's one thing to talk about it's another thing to know all about. It's a very different thing to be. And that's a physiological state. And so when the master speaks, depending on the level of refinement of our awareness, the level of refinement of our physiology, and by physiology, I don't mean like blood chemistry. I mean deeper physiology, the physiology, the psyche, the physiology of the spirit, if you will. And so depending on uh, the level of refinement of that, that determines the level of our understanding of any and all narratives. But the truly wise live in a place that's beyond the grasp of narratives. They use words to give expression to something that lies beyond the domain of words. And then as soon as they say it, depending on the level of the awareness of the listener, they pick it up on a particular level. You see? So it's, you know, the idea of trying to grasp the ungraspable, you know? Uh, but through the process, through the process, through the process, refinement, refinement, refinement happens. And that's what we mean by evolution, spiritual evolution, you know? to rest in one's own true nature. Even the discourse, even this talking can serve the purpose of helping maybe somebody soften their, their white knuckle grip onto a particular narrative that they've identified with, that they think is going to get them there if they can just master that narrative. And that's why 
the most powerful thing you can do for your own evolution is is a proper meditation. Well, what do I mean by proper? I mean a meditation that doesn't control the mind, you know, enable you to focus or what have you, uh, or, or it help you to um, see things in a very mindful way all the time or uh, see things through the perspective of a particular notion or idea or narrative, but rather allows the physiology to rest into its own true nature. And, you know, there's this idea of letting go. Well, if you wanted, you could say it like that. You know, the physiology lets go of identity with relativity and rests into its own true nature. Trouble with that is what do people do with that? They take the notion of letting go and turn it into a narrative. Oh, okay, great. I'm just going to let go of everything. No, that's not it either. We're talking about a physiological state. And it's paradoxical. It's the integration of functioning within relativity and not being lost to relativity. But then we turn another narrative notion around that and get this Hollywood idea of uh, what it means to be enlightened. And then we get Cecil B. DeMille depicting Jesus and Ben-Hur as this otherworldish lofty guy and stuff. And then even beyond that, you know, I don't mean to sound too judgmental, but it is just true that, you know, in the new age now, there's kind of this typical thing where they kind of latch on to Vedic knowledge in sort of a superficial way, you know, and decide that if they act a certain way or think a certain way or function a certain way, then they're more evolved. It's just not true. It's just not true. Personality. What did Swami Muttananda said something? He said, if you don't like your personality, you better change it now because after you're enlightened, you won't care. And so personality uh, manipulation is not a path to uh, spiritual evolution. You know, I mean, there are guidelines, thou shalt not kill and things like that. But we're in a more subtle arena than those superficially obvious uh, uh, constructs, you know. Um, Humility is the flip side of wisdom. You know, there's, I I like to quote Bob Dylan. I think Bob Dylan was a great poet. Uh, uh, Let's see, one song he wrote, Love Minus Zero, No Limit, I think it was. And it's an interesting thing there because he said, my love, she speaks like silence. Well, now that's an interesting thing because I think it's something that can touch all of our hearts. And it's, it speaks to a certain wisdom, you know. She's, she, I love she speaks like silence. There's kind of an inner knowing, a quiet inner knowing. And she comes from that place, you see. At the same time, it doesn't mean that a person of, you know, very high spiritual development doesn't have convictions doesn't have passions, but they come from a different place. Passions can come from identity with a narrative, a conviction. You know, uh, uh, those people are bad and we are good. And this guy's a bad guy and our little team here are good people. Uh, Those tend to be very narrow thinking at the same time. A truly wise person 
might be able to see beyond the narratives, see beyond the identities, see beyond the white knuckled uh, uh, convictions on some level of their being. But at the same time, they act and they can act with passion. Uh, just to give an extreme example, if just because somebody's enlightened doesn't mean they don't worry about their children anymore or wouldn't really want to spontaneously and instinctually protect their children with everything they've got uh, if, if some threatening situation came about. So there's passion, but it's integrated with the depth of their being. And now the problem is, the problem gets tricky. It's very paradoxical, really. It gets tricky because I don't know that you can find many human beings on the planet that would be passionate about something and realize that it's just coming from their identity with a limited perspective. We become passionate about something because we believe in our perspective, no matter how limited it is. People have fought religious wars over that, you know? Um, and it and see, then again, and it doesn't mean that anybody who fights in a religious war is not wise. You see how it works? It's it's very subtle. It's very subtle. And how do you describe that? How do you describe it? Because in a sense, life is, you know, if we want to use the word enlightenment, which again, that's the words lost its meaning to narratives. But if we were going to use that word, you might say that you're just awake to a level that is beyond relativity that holds all relativity. It's like life is completely the same as it ever was. It just is suddenly completely different, you know? It's like there's a backdrop to the whole field of life that wasn't there before. And that is the one thing that upholds it all. It's like all relativity is just lightly etched on the face of being. Being, isness, oneness, God's consciousness, if you will, the silent witness, you could say. And the way that we strive to attain that, it's a razor's edge. It's a razor's edge because one common thing is, you know, the whole approach of cults. They try to, and they don't even know they're doing it necessarily. They 
think they're getting enlightened, but what they're really doing is inducing a trance state. They induce a trance state and they go into this trance. It's kind of like hypnosis in a way. You know, you can hypnotize a person to think they're happy, but that doesn't mean they're really happy. They're just in a trance state. But now the other thing I've noticed about that, now that we're touching on that subject, just because somebody's in a trance state doesn't mean they walk around like a zombie. They can seem perfectly normal. You know, uh, it's just that there's a certain um, imposition or certain quality that's overtaken their awareness. But see, I do that and all of a sudden I'm mimicking a trance state that's kind of like a zombie and it's, it's not, you know. Uh, that's a whole field called left-handed tantra, you know. Uh, but it just speaks to the highly elusive nature of that path of the razor's edge, you know? Um, and we all seem, it seems to be the nature of the human conscious, the nature of human awareness, at least at this stage, that we try to, we aspire to find some sort of indoctrination, some sort of belief system, some sort of worldview, some sort of trance state, some sort of something we can hang our hat on, but true wisdom hangs its hat on nothing because there is no thing. It's pure consciousness beyond identity with anythingness. Am I making sense, you guys? Adrian and Scott. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Anything else about all that? It's, it's a, you know, it's a little, the ideas are a little uh, yeah. abstract, like you said. And so it's it's a little hard to grasp the, um, the feeling of what it's you're saying. It's hard to grasp you know? because it's ungraspable. And it's it's like... It's good that we try to understand it. It's good that we try to grasp it. But it's uh, the wisdom in that process is the humility of knowing that it's not graspable, even though we try to grasp it, you know. Uh, it's engaging that feeling level, right? I think our we try to figure it out with our logical mind and you know it's it's at a what you're do what you're talking about said you see isn't level. that beautiful adrian because it goes right back to the idea of you know people wearing a cross because they can feel it they can sense it inside themselves you know mm-hmm. uh, uh and so yeah and that that feeling that's real i mean uh they feel it they know it's there so then it just becomes a question of the clarity of experience, the, the integration of the experience. Is this just something we sense from, a, from afar? You know? Uh, or is it something that is just a living reality? Now, the problem with that is, oh, yeah, no, I, I, he walks with me, he talks with me, you know, I'm with God all the time. And, and uh, 
but even that becomes can become more of a mindset than a uh, truly uh, wise and enlightened state. So we're trying to describe the uh, indescribable, you know, but I think it has a value. It, it has a value because the search is the process, you know, the exploration is the process. Um, it's not about getting it. You know, I even call that the I get it syndrome, you know. In fact, when you become enlightened, it's not like all of us, oh, I got it all figured out. It's uh, overwhelming, you know. I mean, it just is. I mean, that's just, that's the nature of the thing, you know. I guess that's about all we can say for now. Scott? Or Adrian. Yeah. Yeah, we'll That's beautiful. That was great. We're getting a lot of nice comments here, but no no questions. But it's nice to hear from people. And uh, I guess we'll just um, close with that. I'd like to think it's uh, some good food for thought for all of you. And... Um, <clears throat> When I get to the place in my talks when I feel like I just don't want to sign off, then usually I know it's time to sign off now. Okay, so y'all take care, and we'll talk again uh, next Sunday at 1030, live on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.